Listener Production. One of the strongest findings in the research is that self-compassion allows you to be authentic. So for people trying to navigate the work world, you know, how do I fit in? What am I good at? Will people like me? Am I going to succeed? Self-compassion is such an invaluable tool. It'll give you freedom to be your true self, to be your best self, not because you have to be in order to be likable, but just because you care. I'm Margie Hartley, executive coach to senior leaders around the globe, and this is Fast Track. Negativity and insecurity can be common symptoms of a high-pressure work world. What if there was a way of combating this and becoming more self-accepting and, in fact, self-compassionate? My next guest is a world expert on self-compassion. She is the Associate Professor of Educational Psychology at the University of Texas in Austin, USA, and her current book, Fierce Self-Compassion, How Women Can Harness Kindness to Speak Up, Claim Their Power and Thrive, is fast becoming a bestseller. The concept of self-compassion can be often misconstrued and images of self-indulgent wellness warriors can come to mind. But in fact, self-compassion and fierce self-compassion are evidence-based methodologies for improving the quality of our lives in the everyday and at work. I'm thrilled to welcome you to Fast Track. Thank you, Kristen. Oh, thank you so much for having me. Really happy to be here. I've been reading your work on self-compassion and now fierce self-compassion with lots of curiosity. Can we start with how you began your research in this field and what led you to be a self-compassion expert? <laughs> yes, well, for me, it started as a personal practice. Um, it, was, it was back in graduate school and I was in a really stressful period of my life. And I learned mindfulness meditation to try to help with the stress. And the woman leading the course, in addition to talking about mindfulness, she also talked about this thing called self-compassion, about how when you're struggling or suffering in some way, that it's important to turn the lens of compassion inward as well as outward. You know, and it was, I'd never even really thought of that before. I mean, I was a pretty kind, compassionate, warm and supportive person to my friends but not to myself. So I tried it out. I tried being intentionally warm, supportive, kind, you know, asking myself what I needed with all the stress I was undergoing. And I was just blown away by the immediate, the immediate difference it made in my ability to cope. Um, And so then when I got a job at at University of Texas at Austin, I thought, well, you know, I, I didn't come up with the idea. Actually, in a lot of Buddhist traditions, they talk about compassion inward as well as outward but no one had really researched it. So I thought, well, why not? I'll give it a go. And so I developed a scale to measure it and started researching it. And that was 20 years ago. And now there are almost 4,000 studies on the topic. So there you go. (laughs) That's incredible. So how would you actually define self-compassion? So in my model, I don't really define it differently than compassion for others. It's just compassion turned inward. So if you, in the scientific field, compassion is typically defined as the motivation to alleviate suffering. So it's a feeling of care and concern and the desire for health and well-being. And so when aimed inward, it's basically the desire to help ourselves be well, to alleviate our suffering as much as we can, to support ourselves, to be there for ourselves. 
And that's why when people say that it's self-indulgence, well, self-indulgence by definition means you're harming yourself. So if you're self-compassionate, you don't do, and do anything that's going to harm yourself, including being self-indulgent, because the whole point is you're trying to help yourself be well. So it's not about self-obsession then? No, not at all. In fact, even though the word self is in the term self-compassion, you're actually less self-focused with compassion. That's because we are treating ourselves the way we normally would treat another, right? So in other words, the difference between self-pity and self-compassion, self-pity is poor me, self-compassion is, well, everyone's imperfect. This is the human experience. We're all flawed. We all struggle. So you're actually less self-focused when you're self-compassionate. And you also have more perspective because you're treating yourself like you would treat a friend. You step outside of yourself and say, you know, you're really struggling. What do you need in this moment? And that that allows you to be less self-absorbed. And so when people say be kind to yourself, they're actually literally meaning be self-compassionate. Yes, right. So in my model, actually, I have three components to self-compassion. There is the kindness, but also the common humanity that I just referred to, right? So in other words, compassion means to suffer with. There's a sense of togetherness in our suffering. It's not poor me. Now, oftentimes we think like when something is challenging in our life, that something has gone wrong. Or when we make a mistake, that something has gone wrong. You know, so maybe we even have some personal examples when things go, are challenging. And we think, oh, this isn't supposed to happen as if what's supposed to happen is perfection. Well, whoever said that, right? I mean, the plan we signed up for as human beings is Things are difficult. Things are challenging. It's the way they're supposed to be. There's nothing abnormal about it. And so that that common humanity is is a really important part of self-compassion. And then then also mindfulness. Mindfulness is really key. uh, Because when we're just lost in our suffering, or the other extreme, kind of the British stiff upper lip, you know, I'm just not going to complain. I'm not even going to pause to focus on the fact that, you know, I'm physically hurting or I haven't eaten or whatever. I'm emotionally hurting. It's like, just barrel through. When we take that approach, we also can't be self-compassionate. We need to be mindfully aware of the fact that we're struggling and with some space around it in order to give ourselves compassion. And that's the mindfulness. I I love those three in your book on self-compassion. And in your new book, you talk about fierce self-compassion. Yes. Is it like tough love for yourself or is it more boundary (laughs) setting? What is this? Yeah, I mean, it can be. So basically it's just correcting the misperception people have that self-compassion is all about softness or just, just about acceptance. You know, we accept ourselves as we are with self-compassion, but that doesn't necessarily mean we accept our behaviors or other people's behaviors or that we accept all the situations we're in. So part of caring for ourselves sometimes means being like a fierce mama bear, right? Sometimes it's drawing boundaries. It could be with ourselves. It could be with other people or motivating change. You know, again, if you're in a job that's bad for you, or if you're stuck in this, these habitual behaviors that are harming you, like maybe you, you know, a sugar addict or something like that, and it's really harming your body. Well, then part of being compassionate is saying, hey, knock it off. You know, it's not okay. We need to make a change. Not because you're unacceptable as you are, but because I care. You know, when you care about yourself and you don't want to suffer, you're going to be motivated to make the changes you need to in your life. 
And then also just, you know, doing what we need to make ourselves happy. It's, it's actually taking action as well as acceptance. And that's what I like to call the fierce and tender side of care. Yeah, so I, I really loved that. I really loved that. I've been through some difficult times in my life and I've, you know, feel that the self-compassion piece was just get up and get on with it a bit of the time. And when I read your work, I was able to delineate really clearly around this piece of life's not perfect, everything doesn't go according to plan and and how we are able to be self-compassionate but also at times need the the tough mama love, as you call it, yes. to take us forward. I'm curious about your relationship here when we talk about fierce self-compassion and anger. I've heard you yes. in other interviews or in the book talk about this and I'd love to hear your explanation. Yeah, so most people think that anger is antithetical to compassion. But from my point of view, if anger is used in the alleviation of suffering, it's actually a face of compassion. And so with me, that came to this realization with the Me Too movement. I had my own experience, sadly, with someone who was a, basically a predator and and it was everything was unfolding. And a lot of the women I was seeing had, had a hard time getting in touch with their anger. And I realized so much of that is because anger has been socialized out of us. You know, we aren't supposed to be angry. We don't want to rock the boat. People don't like us when we're angry. And part of the reason that system is set up is so that we don't complain. (laughs) But, you know, if you want to have something like the Me Too movement where women say, hey, that's not okay. This is unacceptable behavior. We need to have access to our anger, right? And this anger when it's in the service of protection. In other words, it's not personal. We aren't demonizing everyone. We are just saying, no, this is not okay. And we're accessing the energy, that fierce, protective energy that can be very angry in in its form. As long as it's harnessed for good, it's a face of compassion. Now, of course, it's, you know, I'm not going to lie. I get it wrong all the time. The line between when you start crossing over and your anger starts harming people, it's easy to fall into. And that's when we need the tender self-compassion to forgive ourselves and ask forgiveness from others, right? So it's hard to get the balance right, but it's so important to, to absolutely honor our anger. This is a force that's rising up to say, I care about myself. I need to protect myself. That's why I'm angry. And your book subtitle is How Women Can Harness Kindness to Speak Up, Claim Their Power and Thrive. Yes. Why do you believe self-compassion is specifically focused on women right now? I've heard you say that you think it would be also of benefit to men in all parts of their lives. Yeah, so it's fierce and tender self-compassion. It's like yin and yang, right? We need both. When we use the term yin and yang, of course we need both. We need the acceptance and the action. But gender role socialization stands in the way differently for men and women. Men actually have more of a difficult time accessing their tender side. You know, the boys are called names that they're too sensitive, right? Or they're too soft or nurturing. Girls are called different names that they're too angry or fierce, right? And so the reason I wrote the book for women was just because I wanted to frame the whole book in in terms of the context of patriarchy, if I can use the P word, patriarchy, which says women aren't allowed to be powerful. They shouldn't be competent. They shouldn't be too successful. They shouldn't be too vocal or speak up or angry. 
and really understand how that's cut us off in many ways from our fear side and how by reclaiming our fierceness, we're also moving towards gender equality. Now, men, you know, I'd have to write a book, uh, you know, tender self-compassion, how men can harness kindness to become sensitive and emotionally intelligent and deal with their pains, you know. It would just be a different type of book. But obviously, ultimately, we all need both. You know, for men, it's like go left and for women, it's go right. But we both need to be in the middle. Mm, Fantastic. Kristen, how is this applied in the workplace if we think about self-compassion? Yeah, so, so, you know, I I really dove into the whole uh, workplace literature to write this book and especially gendered equality in the workplace. There is still the glass ceiling. I mean, it's a lot better than it was, but there's still the glass ceiling, especially at the higher levels. And that's really related to what we were just talking about gender role socialization. The research shows very clearly that people don't like competent women. Now, it used to to be that people just automatically assumed men were more competent than women. That's starting to change slowly, but we still have the effect that if, if if you read a description of two job applicants, one name is Steve, the other one's Andrea, and they're both really competent, and then you ask questions of how likable each are. People don't like Andrea if she's competent. Because we assume if a woman is too fierce that she's not tender. And we really like our nurturing, loving, tender woman. <laughs> and so this is what holds us up because we don't get advanced to the highest levels because even if we are seen as competent, we're disliked. Um, it's also harder. This backlash, if we're too assertive in salary negotiations, People don't like that. And if they don't like us, they offer us less money. So we're kind of caught in a bind, right? We need to be fierce to succeed, but we're disliked if we're fierce. Luckily, there is a way out. The research shows that if in general literature, it's called balancing agency and communion, but they're really pointing to the same thing. Women who can balance agency and communion, in other words, stand up for themselves, but also say, by the way, how are your kids? So combine the fierceness with the tenderness, then that tempers the backlash. So it's kind of, you know, I have to say, it really makes me annoyed that men don't have to do this balancing dance. They can just be themselves and that's unfair and it needs to change. But in the meantime, what we do know from the research is that women who consciously balance the fierceness and tenderness don't have as much backlash from others. And so that's the way forward. I mean, we don't want to just say, okay, well then, we don't want to be just like men, so to speak, and, you know, forego our nurturing, caring side, because that's, that. look at the world today. Part of the whole problem is that the structure is not cared about people. And yet, we don't want to forego our fierceness either. So it's really all about balance. And you can do this in job interviews. You can do this in salary negotiations. You can do this in dealing with, um, if you're a leader, Again, this balance between fierceness and tenderness as an act of compassion is really the way forward from my point of view. So the final chapters are about balance and equality at work. Yes. Caring for ourselves without losing ourselves and what we do for love. Yes. What key message would you give to young professionals in particular who are navigating their way through the complexities of work? Yeah. So... One of the things that self-compassion gives you, and I know this from personal experience, is freedom from caring so much about what other people think of you, right? So often we, we value ourselves based on other people's approval 
right? Do I look the way I'm supposed to look? Do people like me? Do they think I'm nice? Am I successful in my job? With self-compassion, our sense of worth is intrinsic. It just comes from being a flawed human being like everyone else, being a mess, but a compassionate mess like everyone else. And when your worth isn't contingent on approval, what it does is it allows you to be your true self. You can speak up because it doesn't matter so much if people don't like what you say, right? You can take more risks. You can take learning risks because if you fail, that's okay. One of the strongest findings in the research is that self-compassion allows you to be authentic. So for people trying to navigate the work world, you know, how do I fit in? What am I good at? Will people like me? Am I going to succeed? Self-compassion is such an invaluable tool. It'll give you freedom to be your true self, to be your best self, not because you have to be in order to be likable, but just because you care. I teach a leader as coach program and I often talk about this balance of compassion and detachment, which is a Buddhist tenement. And as Mm. you're speaking, I'm hearing the very same thing. It's compassion and detachment. You don't have to like me. I can be compassionate to you and myself, but I'm detached from what you think. Right, exactly. Yeah. And and I'm sure your listeners know this, but it's not a cold detachment. It's like non-attached. It's like, I don't, I just don't care that much. And that really does give you a lot of freedom. Amazing. Um, What are the blockers to self-compassion, Kristen? Well, actually, the number one block to self-compassion is the belief that it's going to undermine your motivation. People really think they need their self-criticism in order to achieve their goals. And I have to admit, it does kind of work. I mean, there are many people who've gotten through grad school or law school through harsh self-criticism, but it has a lot of unintended consequences like um, fear of failure, right? Or if you shame yourself when you, when you make a mistake, you actually can't learn from your failure. And it, it also creates a lot of anxiety and stress, which makes it harder to do your best. And so what we know from the research is self-compassion, it doesn't undermine your motivation. It enhances it. It's actually more effective than self-criticism. Again, the motivation is you do it because you care, not because you're inadequate. And when the motivation is just because you want to learn and grow and be your best, then when you fail, you're able to say, oh, well, ouch, you know, everyone fails as part of being human. What can I learn from this situation? And this helps you try again. It helps you be less anxious so that you can perform better. Again, that's, that's a real fallacy. Self-compassion enhances motivation. It doesn't undermine it. But it's a block. It's a barrier, sadly. So how do we actually practice and discover self-compassion? I'm just curious, what's your suggestions? Well, the, the last 10 years of my career, I've really been focused primarily on this question. How do we learn self-compassion? How do, I, how do we teach it? So I actually teamed up with a close colleague named Chris Germer, And we developed something called the Mindful Self-Compassion Program, which has a lot of empirical support in terms of this is the skill you can learn. Even if maybe it wasn't modeled for you in childhood and it's a little difficult for you, you absolutely can learn the skill. It's just kind of retraining your brain to get in the habit of being kind to yourself like you are to others. And so, you know, my books, I have a lot of exercises. It's not just ideas or And it's not just like make a list of the nine ways to do this. You know, the actual concrete practices. I've got recordings of the practices on my website at selfcompassion.org. You can listen 
Um, you can take mindful self-compassion training through the Center for Mindful Self-Compassion. We teach all sorts of workshops. So this is really something that you can do. And it's not that difficult. It's not rocket science. You don't have to like meditate for an hour and get into this state of samadhi or something. So you just got, you know, put your hand on your heart and say, hey, this is really hard and try to be warm and caring towards yourself. Well, I did one um, of your meditations off your website yesterday, a loving kindness meditation in a break uh, that had emerged and it was really powerful. So thank you. You're welcome. Yeah, it's, a, it's not me. It's, it's the self-compassion. It's, it's a powerful skill set mm. that anyone can learn. And I really think it's so important for everyone. Apart from your books, have you found a real movement that's coming behind self-compassion, the understanding of self-compassion, the awareness of self-compassion and how it can change the way we live and work? Yes, I mean, it really is a movement. So like I said, there's almost 4,000 studies. Well, most of those aren't by me, that's for sure, right? So a lot of researchers are interested. We've got about 150,000 people who've taken the MSc program around the world. It's starting to enter the common culture. It's, it's slightly following on the footsteps or the coattails of mindfulness, which is great because they go together. So now that people are kind of accepting a mindfulness, which used to be weird, it's like, okay, mindfulness is pretty mainstream. So people are now opening up to the idea of self-compassion. But a huge reason is the research. I think if we didn't have the research, people just wouldn't trust it. Um, but the research is pretty incontrovertible. It makes a huge difference in our ability to cope. Well, today has been an absolute pleasure. I suspect that I could talk to you for a lot longer. I have to say thank you so much for spending the time with us, giving us a taster about self-compassion, fierce self-compassion, and the difference it can truly make for each of us in the way we work and live. Kristen Neff, thank you so much. Oh, you're welcome. It's been a pleasure. Fast Track was presented by me, Margie Hartley, producer Tina Matalov, audio production by Darcy Thompson, Executive producer, Jennifer Goggin. Listener.